So it's dark time now. Then the Apache, we hear over the radio, the Apache comes and goes, we've got other targets. I'm not privy to everything that was going on right then, but I know Bertie got straight under the blower and went, no, no, they're lighting us up. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. You know we're a part of this The story of transformation is powerful. Dean Parkinson is a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment. Despite significant injuries in an aircraft accident in training, Dean eventually became a commando and deployed two times to Afghanistan. He's also competed at the highest professional level of speed skydiving. This is my conversation with Dean about how he went from Qantas flight attendant to Australian Special Forces. Dean Parkinson, welcome to Life on the Line. G'day, Alex, and uh, mate, it's a real pleasure to be here and have a chat to you, so thanks for having me on. Where did you grow up, Dean? Born in 1970 in Mackay, North Queensland. Pretty much was up there until I was 14 years old. I went to Christian Brothers College up there, was in cadets, moved to the Sunshine Coast. So we moved down to Maroochydore, and I uh, lived there for the next three or four years until uh, I joined the army at 17. Did doing cadets have any influence on your joining the military? It did, but I think my military influence came at a very early age. When we were living in Mackay, both my mum and dad worked all the time. They worked very hard in in different particular jobs. And so what happened is uh, every Christmas, they would fly myself and my two sisters, my older sisters, down to my grandparents' farm. They had a farm outside of Brisbane, a place called Rath Downey. There's a cattle property down there. So we'd spend six to eight weeks every year down there over the Christmas period. And when we were down there, there was no TV. You know, we're up at four helping milk cows and doing all that sort of stuff that both my, called them Mama and Poppy, were pretty stringent with discipline, which was probably a good thing. So we were up at four in the morning, we'd go and help around the farm and that sort of stuff. The only thing that I had to do to pass the time of day when I was there was either running around the bush, pretending I was in the army, that sort of stuff. But particularly, my grandfather had a book on World War II. He had two of his brothers, my great uncles. They both served in World War II in uh, Asia. And this book was fairly thick, you know, it was two or three inches thick, had a lot of photos. And so all I ever used to do, every year I was down there, I'd spend hours and hours and hours just pouring through this book, imagining things. And I think that's where the crux of my wanting to be in the army started really early from when I was five or six, I suppose. One was my great uncle, Jim Newman. He was in B Troop 19th Battery. He's buried in the cemetery in Thailand. He died in Changi. He was captured after the fall of Singapore. And I had another uncle, Alfred Newman, who served in the Australian Army in the Stanley Ranges in Papua New Guinea. He was wounded in action with a bayonet injury and he was a guy that I looked up to when we used to go down to my grandfolks' place on the holidays at Christmas. We'd always go out and see Uncle Digger. That's who we called him, Uncle Digger. He was a great man. I mean, we'd walk around in freezing cold early in the morning and he'd be walking around in a set of shorts just walking around. And not that he ever spoke about it too much. He told me a couple of little bits and pieces of up there, but um, Uncle Digger passed away only a year ago now. So 
those two guys as a young kid, knowing one and then hearing about the other one had a big influence on me as well. It just uh, cemented or reiterated my desire to serve. So it was this really long childhood dream that was percolating over time. Then you finally join up and you said that was at 17? This was a time when cadets, we rolled around with 303s. We did a lot of navigation and that sort of stuff, medical training and that sort of thing. We actually fired rifles back then. One of the guys who used to come out on uh, our bivouacs, as we used to be called, was uh, Keith Payne, VC winner. And he'd come out and scream and yell at us and do all sorts of things. And, and that was a catalyst for me. I mean, I even looked at joining the army, going in as an apprentice at 15, just because I didn't want to be an apprentice. I didn't want to do anything like that. I just wanted to get in the army as soon as possible. But my mum sort of talked me out of that and said, look, just wait, you know, wait until you're 17 and um, go and join the infantry, which is what I wanted to do. When you had Keith Payne VC yelling at you, did you have an appreciation of who he was and what the Victoria Cross meant? I have to say no. I mean, I knew who he was and I knew the VC was the highest honour for battlefield bravery. So the way I looked at it back then was I just knew that this is a guy who'd been there and done that. After he came out that first bivouac that we were on, I went back and then started reading up on him. And then it was only then that I realised, okay, so this guy's the real deal. And, and I really looked up to that because that was one of my things. When I was going to join the army from then on, from when I was 14, 13 or whatever, I just wanted to go infantry, then I wanted to go to special forces. And back then it was only SAS. So that was sort of my goal. And the other goal was, you know, I wanted to be a paratrooper. I wanted to jump out of planes. And one of my dad's best mates was in 6RAR during the Vietnam War. He was a bit jaded by it and he used to come around and dad would do his tax every year because dad was pretty cluey and he'd sit there and have beers and I'd go there and just sit there and just listen. You know, there's lots of swearing and lots of sort of jargon. He'd never talk about Vietnam at all, but I would just pester him for stories constantly, you know, tell me about this, tell me about that. Anyway, one of these days he brought a, a brochure. I would have been probably 13 or 14. He brought a brochure around and it was a join the Australian Army brochure. And he was like, he just put it out and it was this sort of double A4 sort of thing that folded out and it had these different jobs on there. And it had, you know, driving trucks and infantry and medical and that sort of stuff. And there was one with a dude jumping out of a plane. And I was like, well, what's that? And he was like, well, that's, you know, paratroopers. And then he goes, you've got to be sort of crazy to do that. And then there was one beside it and it was sort of a little bit more sort of cloaked in darkness and that sort of thing. And I said, well, what's this one? He goes, well, that's SAS. And he goes, no, nah, you don't want to be involved in any of that sort of stuff because, you know, they're crazy. And he really tried to push me away from the infantry thing as well as pushing me away from the whole army thing. But I mean, it just made me more excited and made me want it even more. Tell me then about your early days in the army in the late 80s and early 90s. And do you get that adrenaline rush of jumping out of planes? Yeah, so I joined late 87, 88, and I went to Kapuka. But at that time, the uh, military was run down a little bit. There wasn't a lot going on. So when I first joined, going to Kapuka, I really loved it. I was 17 years old, but I was 17 going on 13. I was a really young guy. I was light. I mean, I only just got in. I was, I think it was 49 kilos when I joined. And oh, wow. They were going to knock me back. I loved being a soldier that much. I just sort of stuck it out. Did you, in fact, win best soldier at one point in your early training? Yes. One best soldier really tried my best at everything at Kapuka so that I'd get my first slot. And I remember people joking about it going, you don't have to be the best to go to infantry. In fact, you know, back in those days, they used to try and send the best guys to tankies and that because it was a harder job to get into. But infantry was the only way I wanted to go. So once uh, I'd finished Kapuka and we were off to Singleton for infantry training, you know, you're out firing M60s, MAG-58s, 66s, all that sort of stuff, and digging pits, which I didn't like. But, I mean, that was all part of it. 
back in like 88. So all the stuff that you learned, all your bushcraft and all those skills were the really man skills that you sort of probably don't have as much of these days because we have all these beautiful, you know, pieces of night vision gear and all that sort of stuff that we have these days. Well, back then, night vision gear was sort of ridiculous. You know, you look through these huge big lenses and it just came up with pixelated black and white. So you sat there and you, you really, when you were doing your night stuff, you'd put that down, you just... You'd close your eyes, open your mouth and really listen hard. And you'd look, you know, you'd, you'd use the skills of looking at peripheral vision and that sort of thing a lot more. So, but I just, I just enjoyed that whole soldiering side of things once I got to sing Let's jump ahead to when you make it into Airborne Platoon. Tell me about that and those experiences and what you were getting up to at that point in time. Yeah, from just working hard at the unit, I put in an application. It's something that usually takes a lot of years. I got accepted pretty much straight away. So I didn't spend much time in recon platoon. I ended up going straight down after about uh, six months or so down to the parachute training school where our jobs basically were to help support all the parachute training courses. So we would stooge on different courses for instructor courses, drive down the hot boxes for lunch and stuff like that at the drop zone during basic freefall and basic parachute courses. And the other thing that we would do, obviously, was we got freefall qualified. We would then go and do a heap of jumping, do a lot of uh, demonstration jumps around Australia, Grand Prix, motorbike Grand Prix, and that sort of stuff. So the time that the years that I spent down there was amazing. You know, I had a really good time down there and I enjoyed it immensely. We got away with a lot down there. We played up a fair bit. We got in trouble a lot. It was exactly what I wanted to be doing at that time. It's your childhood dream come true. You know, we did all the freefall camera work for the freefall courses. So we had all the SAS guys coming over during their reinforcement cycle, doing their freefall training. And so I got to meet a lot of guys then who are still mates of mine now. But I would run into these guys decades later in Afghanistan while they were serving with the SAS and I was over there with two commando. It was a great part of my life. It ended with a plane crash. First one, first of three. I ended up having three plane crashes. We were doing a basic freefall course and a military freefall jump master course at a place called Jasper's Brush. And I was hot loading from one plane to the other. So I was going from the Pilatus Porter, doing an illegal thing, jumping over and switching manifests and jumping on and videoing on the Caribou as well. At that time, that sort of stuff was, it was scowled upon by certain people, but by other people, they sort of just let it slide because I was working, obviously, still, I was just, you know, doing double the load, but um, ended up having a plane crash that day. And uh, one of my early mentors in my military career passed away on that crash. And it sort of really rocked me for the next sort of, you know, probably nearly a decade of my life. Because you walk away, not just with the shock of that incident, but you walk away quite injured as well. It was pilot error, and this is not to point at the pilot, because the pilot, who I won't name, is, was a good guy. We'd worked a lot with him, and he was a really good pilot. Pilatus Porter, it's a turbine aircraft, so once it takes off, it's got a lot of power in it. He had the wrong flap setting on it, and it just climbed straight up, went to about 200 feet, and winged over straight away. Now, I was the only person that was on a seat, which was a milk crate. So I was sitting on a milk crate, because everyone else was sitting on the floor. And back then, no one wore helmets on takeoff. Well, sorry, people wore helmets on takeoff, but being a cameraman, I didn't wear a helmet, because you had these massive cameras on our heads back then, as you can imagine, and it would break your neck if you, if you had an incident. So I had the helmet sitting beside me. I was sitting on a milk crate. Everyone else was sitting on the ground, and I was looking directly at the only window in this little 10-seater plane. As we took off, it sort of surged and went and just started climbing like a homesick angel straight away. It just went straight up and it started winging over. And I remember thinking straight away, well, this is not good. This is not normal. And I remember yelling out, we're going in, we're going in, you know, grab onto something. I still have a vision in my head today of the ground rush coming up through this window. Like it was just like a small golf ball size and then just sort of rushed straight up onto my face, you know, and, and we impacted really hard. I probably was passed out very, very briefly. I woke up. 
and the pilot's heads were uh, pinned to the dash by one of the wings. I had all this, what I thought was water rushing over my head and it was stinging because I had all these cuts and stuff in my head. And it was the um, avgas coming out of the wings, pouring all over us. And there was just a hump of bodies. We're all on top of each other. A lot of grown men moaning and stuff like that. It was really quite heavy. I tried to grab one of the guys and get up and make it out through the hole, which was formed from the crash from the door popping off. So I ran out about two maybe paces or so and then dropped to the ground because I'd find out later I'd broken my back, pelvis, you know, fractured skull, knee, all sorts of things going on. Nowhere near the, the worst that happened to guys that day, obviously. But I remember getting dragged away by one of the uh, SAS guys off uh, that was on his um, parachute jump course out of the other plane. And seeing other guys get dragged out. One of the guys was Stephen John Daly. He was a corporal in the SAS. And I'd looked up to him a lot. I'd sort of hung out with him after work a lot. He was a, everything that I imagined an SAS soldier was at that stage. You know, he was big, fit, likable, stern, but fair. And he took me under his wing when he was over there because he was there for quite a while. So I got to hang out with him. I trained a lot with him. You know, he smashed me in PT and that sort of stuff. And I just knew that that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to do that sort of thing. But um, yeah, once that happened, you know, I spent probably four to six weeks in hospital. I was in a, a room with uh, Cowboy Stewart. He was an instructor in the same plane. He busted his pelvis and that as well. And the CO at the time was pretty distraught about what had happened. And he'd come in at all sorts of times in the morning with his driver at 2am with pizzas and sneak a beer into us and all this sort of stuff. And when I came back, I asked the commanding officer for um, 12 months off leave without pay, just so I could go and get my head straight. Because at that stage with a broken back and the way the army was back then, this was in like 92, I think, they were sort of basically not offering me to go back to full med status. So I wasn't going to be able to jump. Yeah, you'd be medically downgraded, desk bound, and just not the career you've been looking for all these years at all. Yeah, and that's right. And I was just, that's when I decided to get out. The year before the plane crash, I actually did SASR selection, 19 or 20 years old. I got pretty much three quarters of the way through and then I got injured. I fell off a peak during the navigational phase. Happy Wanderer. Uh, yes, Happy Wanderer. And it was in the Sterling Ranges at that stage. I was on my third peak, I think, and the second day we were out there, I was on my third peak and um, I got to the top. And as I got to the top, this is where I met Stephen Daly, who was the gentleman who passed away in the, the border crash. I got to the top and he sort of, when you get there, they don't really give you much. They just sort of say, right, here's your next coordinates. Who are you? Where'd you come from? I'm candidate. They called us rangers back then. I'm ranger such and such or whatever. I sat down and I was getting my bearings for my next one. And he called me over and goes, hey, mate, do you want some fruit and some bread rolls? And like, you just think it's a trick, right? I'm going, oh, no, I'm fine. Thanks. No, I'm good. No. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, look, mate. He goes, over there in the fridge go and grab yourself a bread roll and a piece of fruit. <laughs> I'm looking around going, where's this fridge? And like, is he having a go at me? What's going on here? True to form, these fellas, just to entertain themselves, had made a fridge out of rocks and stuff and had this big sort of flat rock as a door. So I opened the door and pulled out a piece of fruit and a bread roll and I walked back down, sat down and then they you know, yelled out and said, oi, close the effing door. You know? So I had to go back over and close the door of the fridge. And anyway, that's where I sort of started my sort of friendship with Stephen Daly. It was only the next day, I think, or the day after that I uh, fell down one of the peaks going in between two peaks, really hurt myself. And I was withdrawn off the course and I was shattered. Like, I mean, I, I remember being pulled off the course and like just absolutely crying. Being an emotional wreck because this is all I ever wanted to do. And they were saying no at this stage. I got the chance to come back. They said I could come back and have another crack. Look, we were really, really impressed with you. You know, for a young bloke, we don't really let a lot of young blokes on the course. We really want you to come back and have another crack. And that's where I started this sort of friendship with him. And I started hanging out and just sort of like hanging off his every word and, you know, listening to his advice. So when he passed away, I had a really big survivor guilt thing happening. You know, like here's this guy I looked up to, this guy that believed in me, this guy that was going back to, you know, basically get me another crack at the selection course. 
and then it was sort of over. And then on top of that, the CEO is saying, you're being medically downgraded. You can't have 12 months off leave without pay. And so I got out. Well, Dean, you've had this dream for years, since childhood of join the army, join special forces. You don't make on your first crack SAS selection. You see a mate and mentor pass away. You're in an horrific plane crash yourself and you are grievously injured from it. All in a, what, the span of a year? I can't imagine your mental state at the time, to be honest. That must have been very traumatic to go through. It was, mate. I didn't realise it until probably a full decade or a bit later how much it impacted me. But you've got to remember, this is like 92, 93. There was no uh, support network. You just got your discharge papers, whatever money they owed you, and you're out. See you, mate. Yep, see you later. No, hey, what can we do? There was no one ringing you up a month later saying, hey, what's going on and lots of stuff. So I literally packed my things into a hire car and I drove back home to my sister's place who was living in the hinterland on the Sunshine Coast which is where I live today still. And I remember just being out there on the farm and they were working on the farm. So no one was home all day. It was just me with my thoughts. I ended up drifting for many years, making poor choices. I certainly had a lot of fun in those years as well. You go through what would have been quite a lot of hard physical rehab. You get yourself physically fit enough for civilian skydiving. Talk to me a bit about the speed skydiving you get into and the civilian career you eventually start to build yourself in Cairns because you rack up over 10,000 jumps. So you make quite a turnaround from this, to be honest, wreck walking out of that crash and you turn your life around completely in the civilian sector. Yeah. So one thing I was good at when I was at school was I was a surfer and I represented Queensland for school surfing and won a pro-am competition when I was 17, just before I joined the army and stuff. So I was quite a good surfer. So I started doing surf coaching and at night I was working in a bar, just picking up glasses and stuff like that. Did a bit of modeling and that sort of stuff, which I don't tell a lot of lads about because it's sort of, <laughs> it's a bit, it's, I even feel funny talking about it now, but my wife laughs because she was sort of, we were hanging around each other in those early years then. And so, you know, I did quite a few different sort of jobs and it, it took a few years for me to get back to doing skydiving because at that stage still I had dramas with my back and I was worried about my back. Anyway, at some stage through those years, I felt fit enough and hungry enough to sort of start skydiving again. So I actually got a job in Australia's first wind tunnel, which is an indoor skydiving tunnel back in the day. And that was on Sunshine Coast. So I started working there and through there I met another good mate of mine who's a mate to this day. And his dad ran a drop zone at Arachula. So I went out there started doing camera work again, started doing instructional work. So I got my uh, AFF license, which is uh, Australian Freefall Coaching License. Ported myself out of the sort of pub scene and working and doing uh, surf coaching into skydiving. Did a little bit of uh, sky surfing back in its infancy. And then I got into a thing called the speed skydiving later down the track. I'd been working in Cairns for probably up to seven years, I think, doing tandems up there. And I loved it. Like that was a five to seven day a week job. Pay was good and the life was good partied a lot up there as well. And I started just wanting to compete and do something with my skydiving rather than just, you know, working as a tandem master all the time. And I just saw this, this other guy, this, I can't remember his name. He was doing it as Australian guy. And then there's this French guy doing it in France. So I just sort of got online and I saw a few videos. I went, oh, that's me. I don't have to rely on anyone else. It's just me. I can go after it as hard and as fast as I like. So I started studying as much online and looking at footage of how to do it. And I basically started teaching myself how to do it because back then we're talking, you know, I don't know, mid to late nineties, there wasn't a lot of head down skydiving in Australia. And now I think nearly everyone does head down skydiving because with wind tunnels and everything, you know, everyone's doing sort of all this sort of head down stuff. But back then there wasn't much of it. Everyone else used to do flat flying and that sort of thing. So, um, I went away for about six or seven World Cups. I think the best I ever did was a fifth. 
And my average speed over a vertical kilometre was 501 kilometres an hour. So used to wear two devices, one either side of your harness. You would jump out, go into a head down position, basically, and hold that for as long as you could. And at about five and a half thousand feet, you would fan out like a F-111 with its wings does. You'd sort of start to fan out and flatten out slowly, slow your speed down to a normal free fall speed, which is about 220 kilometers an hour, and then over your parachute. Yeah, so, I mean, I chased that around Europe for two years, and I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was great. You don't really show fear or say no, do you? I mean, that fall in SAS selection, the plane crash, despite all these, you keep going and now this is my passion, I'm going to do it. And you pursue it to the highest level, World Cup comp competing. Yeah, that's right. Mate. I mean, I've never really looked at it like that. I don't think I've ever categorized myself as an adrenaline junkie. I, I don't think I am. I just, I just like doing exciting things. But you're not letting these negative experiences deter you or stop you either. You are just pushing on. It's a strength. It's resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest message I'm, I'm sort of, you know, happy to be talking about with this is that, and I want to leave this for my, my kids because I don't talk a lot about this stuff with my kids, is that for this decades, you know, after that plane crash and, and getting out of the army and stuff like that, I had unfinished business. I didn't really realize that at the time, but yeah, I was still pushing myself to do different things. You know, I was, I was a great tandem master, mate. I mean, I used to take people up and just say to them, you know, how many flips do you want to do? And if people had said seven, then that's what we do, seven. I'd hold the drogue in. I wouldn't throw the drogue out. I used to hold the drogue in on small passengers and I used to track past the other three or four tandem masters with their passengers that got out before me. I'd get out last. I'd track past them without a drogue all the way past to the first guy and then I'd, I'd throw my drogue out. And that might be at 7,000 feet, you know, whereas a lot of tandem masters, even to this day, they get the drogue out straight away, which is, you know, what you're supposed to do. But I just loved sort of the challenge of pushing myself, you know. And it was during that time that I had another plane crash when I was in Aratula. We had a plane crash after takeoff. And it wasn't as bad as the first one. No one really got hurt. But it was a crash landing once again. We took off. The pilot was a young guy. He left the oil cap off a Cessna 182. The oil went straight over the front of the windscreen. He couldn't see anything. And we had the owner of the operation who was also a pilot. He was the other tandem master in the aircraft with me. He sort of got this guy to do a, a loop that was really low, just above the tree line, got him back around safe. And we landed back on the end of the runway, but he ran off, you know, through a fence and into a sort of a, like a dam, we used to call it, down at the end of the runway. So, I mean, we got away with that one. And then I had another plane crash. <laughs> I mean, but people telling me that lightning doesn't strike twice. Well, it does. It can strike three or four times. So I had another plane crash years later with my girlfriend who became my wife. We went camping on an island off Mackay, which is uh, Keswick Island. And once again, it was a new pilot with an aircraft that had never landed on the small strip. To cut the story down, this pilot, she put the flaps on way too late smashed the plane in, just dropped it out of the sky from about 50 feet, snapped the wings in half, the undercarriage went, and we just pulled up before we went into the um, end of the runway into the ocean. We got away with that one too. That did re-injure my back. I did have a bit of drama with it for after that for a, a year or so again, but we did get away with no one getting really severely hurt. And amongst all this, you also become a Qantas flight attendant, Dean. Along with the litany of other fun, sort of cool jobs, I suppose, if you want to call it that, when I came back from Cairns, I came back from Cairns in 2001 and I'd been back for maybe a week, actually been at the beer garden with a few mates, having a few beers and we were tying one on, so to speak. And we were coming home to have a shower and get changed and actually go back out for the evening. I think it was late afternoon from recollection, but I came home, jumped over the railing and one of my friends was sitting there and he was sort of sitting there watching TV. He was transfixed on the TV, which sort of was really strange. And as we walked in, he sort of said, hey man, you got to watch this, you know? And I remember thinking, okay, but I ran inside to grab my jeans and stuff. And I came back in and he goes, mate, you got to watch this. You got to watch what's going on here. 
So we stopped. We watched the TV. We'd only been watching it for a couple of maybe two minutes, watching this tower with fire on it. And then we saw this plane fly into the second tower. Boom. So it was September 11th. And I remember just looking at it going, it sobered me up straight away. And I remember thinking, what the hell am I watching here? You know, like who's responsible for this? And this is going to change the world. The reason I'm sort of going on about this is that because at that stage, I was sort of getting uh, back with my long time on and off girlfriend, who is now my wife, Julie. I was trying to stabilise my life a little bit. So I was still a tanner master on the Sunshine Coast, but I was looking for other jobs and I just started applying to become a flight attendant on the Sunshine Coast. So seeing the plane fly into buildings, becoming a flight attendant, starting my life with this girl that I've been chasing my whole life too, which is a whole other story, but talk about resilience. That took some um, <laughs> resilience over the years. Yeah, I became a flight attendant then. A couple of years later, we started our family. So it was flying for regional, for Qantas, and I really enjoyed the job. Used to get ribbed by a few mates going, you know, only gay guys work as flight attendants and that sort of thing. And I remember just thinking, well, I've got friends who are gay and my mates that I worked with there were gay. There's only a couple of guys and I, I sort of found that really offensive. But at the same time, I used to throw back at them and say, well, yeah, but I'm working with 120 females as well. I had this really bizarre position of being in this job that, paid extremely well. I only worked about 30 hours a week. So it gave me time to, you know, pursue my other pursuits, spearfishing, triathlon, that sort of stuff, skydiving as well. So I sort of worked those two jobs. And um, look, those years that I worked at Qantas, I absolutely loved. And um, we started our little family while I was working there. So it was a great, stable job. I wasn't wanting for anything. You know, we bought our first house, had uh, two young boys, and life was really good. But all this time in the back of my head, while I was doing this job, was September 11th and, and the, the military and the army. And from that very day that I saw September 11th happen, I remember being back in contact with some friends of mine. A couple of them were in the SASR. And one mate of mine was in this unit for RER, which was, had just been raised, I think, late 2000s or something like that. It was around Timor or something. I'm not too sure on the timeline. Late 90s, re-raised as for RER bracket commando. Yeah, yeah. And he'd gone over to Timor and that sort of thing. And he just, from about 2000 and Two, so like from after September 11th, and I'd started talking to these guys from 2002, he sort of started going, man, you know, like they, they're going to need numbers. They're, both units are going to need numbers. They're going to be trying to raise four commando up to full strength and that sort of thing. And so I actually joined the Armour Reserve in around end of 2002, 2003, I think. And I ended up doing it a couple of years, but the Armour Reserve just didn't mix with me. I, I just, I couldn't get this weekend soldiering thing. And although I had a few guys that I'd actually served with who were high up in the unit that I was in at Anogra, actually one was my ex-section commander and he was the CSM of the unit. Although I had those guys there, I just, I couldn't buy into it because when we go away and do things on the weekends, I found, and this is not to, you know, downplay the importance of the reserve role, but to me at that stage, I found there was a lot of guys who were playing soldier and not trying to be a soldier. And so I had mixed emotions about doing that. So I had to go to Kapuka and did four weeks instead of 12 weeks. I think they upsquatted me pretty quick. Day one, they upsquatted me and I did four weeks at Kapuka and pretty much helped out as a section commander, even though I was a recruit because I was 32 years old or something then, 32 or 33. Once I got back to the unit, but, you know, I did some mill skills comps and stuff like that and it was really great, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I sort of fell out of that role again. At that time, I actually thought I'd discharge, but I didn't. They actually kept me on the books, which comes to be, you know, to fruition later because when I end up joining the third time, uh, was when I was 37, I didn't have to do Kapuka, obviously, because they'd still had me on the books as having done that. And just to point out, you won Best Soldier a second time. 
Yeah, and I, was, I really wasn't happy about that. And I did actually say to the platoon staff that I didn't want it. I'd only done four weeks. There were young guys there that had done the whole 12 weeks and a couple of guys that I really thought were fantastic young soldiers and stuff. They didn't have a bar of it. Just to summarise, you grew up, started your dream career straight away. You gave the Special Forces selection a go and it was nearly but not to be. You're in that horrific plane crash. You leave. You go explore a range of civilian career options, build up your passions and your pursuits and your skills in other various areas. 9-11 happens. A few years later, you feel that itch to join up. You've got friends who are progressing in the military into four RIR commando element as well. And you're getting that, oh, maybe I have unfinished business. You join up and it's not what you want it to be. So you leave again. So you've gone in and out twice. And as you've alluded to already, there's going to be a third time. Talk to me about that third and final time you put your hand up for military service, which, spoiler alert, does result in you finally becoming a Special Forces member, a member of the 2nd Commando Regiment. So I'm going to work flying as a flight attendant, coming home, being a dad. At that stage, I was doing Ironman triathlons because I just wanted to do something that I could just test my fitness. And at that stage, that was sort of the biggest one-day sort of event you could do. And I didn't want to do small triathlons. I didn't want to do sprint distance or anything. So I just hopped straight into Ironman triathlons. Life's good, but every night on the TV, Afghanistan, this is happening in Afghanistan. You know, Australian Special Forces are doing this. At that time, there wasn't a lot of talk about the commando element. They would either call it SASR or they would call it SOTG. They never really minced around, you know, about the commandos at that stage. But obviously being a bit of an army buff and that, I'd done a lot of research and talking to friends and it just had this yearning desire to, just to get back in. Obviously, I was aware of, you know, I had a small family. We had a great life. I didn't have to do this. My wife didn't want me to do this. But I remember sitting down with her one night when the kids had gone to bed, looked her in the eyes and I said, look, I, I really need to do this. And she was like worried. She goes, oh, I don't, don't want it to change you. And, you know, and, and we had this cliche moment. And I know it's very cliche, but it actually happened where she was like, well, you've got to promise me that one, it doesn't change you. And two, you're not going to die. And I sort of said to her, hey, you know, like I said, I'm not even in yet. You know, like let's one step at a time. But she wouldn't let me off the couch and she wouldn't give me a blessing until I promised both those things. So stupidly, I promised. And I said, of course, I'm not going to change. And of course, I'm not going to die. So she did give me a blessing. She is my rock. She is the best person, the best thing that's ever happened to me. She raised those two boys by herself and she had a miscarriage on one trip and she had a baby on another trip while I was away. So this is the type of person that we're dealing with. So she lets me go off and apply for selection. I didn't want to go through the infantry side of things again. I didn't want to get lost in the system. And at that stage, you got to remember, I was 37 years old. So when you go onto the Army's website at that stage, when you look up Special Forces, it was all run out of Singleton, Special Forces Training Centre. You would go in, you would do the barrier test, and then they would branch off into whether you want to go to SASR and you know, live on the West Coast or stay on the East Coast and go to two commando. Straight away, it said, you can't be over 30 years old. And I was like, damn it. Once again, that wasn't going to stop me. So what I did was I snuck onto Inogra Army Barracks one night as a civilian. There was a, the SFTC were doing their yearly promotional trip where they'd go around to each of the main bases, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, that sort of thing, Townsville, and they would do their talk. I talked my way onto a base then, which was really hard to do because you had to be military because after September 11th, they'd up everything. So I talked my way on to the base and sat up the back of this little hall. There was some SAS guys and a couple of two commando guys giving lectures. And they were just basically talking and then it became a Q&A. And I remember looking around the room, looking at all these really fit young guys, you know. You could tell they were good soldiers, loving their soldiering and that sort of stuff. And I remember thinking, oh, Jesus, you know, I'm a bit old. I am a flight attendant. I'm a dad. I wonder how this is going to go. So I waited until at the very end and I was sort of wrapping up the Q&A and I sort of put my hand up bravely at the back and 
I sort of had a little bit longer hair than everyone else too. And I put my hand up and this guy, and his name is Bram Connell. He was a captain at the time. And he said, yes, mate. And I said, look, I've just got one question. And I said, um, it says, you know, on the website, you have to be 30 years old. And I said, is there any movement in that age? And he sort of looked at me and he sort of went, well, mate, how old are you? You don't look much over 30. And I have to say, I, I didn't at that stage. And I said, uh, I'm 37. That sort of turned all the instructors' heads around, all these young guys around. And he goes, what unit are you in? And I said, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a city. I'm a, I'm a flight attendant with Qantas. Well, there was laughing and a little bit of snickering and, and all that sort of stuff, not by the instructors, just by some of the guys that were sitting there. And it was just fair enough. And I sort of laughed at it myself. So I'm thinking, what am I doing here? You know, like, this is not going to happen. You've not quite sold your full backstory there in that sentence, but yep, go on. So he sort of looked at me and he, he spoke to this other warrant officer from the SASR. And they both just looked up at me and went, well, mate, you don't look over 30. So wait at the end and we'll have a chat to you. So I waited another hour because everyone sort of walks out and has their conversations and all this sort of stuff. I just waited and waited and waited and I was literally the last person to leave. And I came down, I spoke to these guys and they said, right, give us a quick brief on who you are. So I just gave them a quick background. You know, I've done this time in the military, you know, this had happened and blah, blah, blah. At the moment, I'm, I'm still skydiving. I've got, I had about, I don't know, 9,000 something jumps at that stage or whatever. And Tanner master, so my back's good, you know, uh, I spearfish, I'm in the water all the time. I've done two Ironmans, around 10 and a half hours, you know, which is a pretty decent time. So they basically said, okay, when you get home, write us an email and send it in. We'll see what we can do. And I thought that would be the end of it. I really did. I thought that was the end of it. They were really cool. That was the last thing I said was, how'd you get on the base? And I said, well, and the old guy finished my sentence. He goes, you improvised, did you? He goes, how'd you get on without an ID? I said, I just conned my way on. He goes, I like it. You know, this is this warrant officer from SASA. I guess I like that. That's cool. Showing resourcefulness. They appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so anyway, so I went home. Um, I wrote the email out. I put down everything that I'd done, you know, so I didn't hear anything for about a month. And then I had a phone call and it was Bram. He said, hey, g'day, mate. It's Captain Connolly from SFTC. He goes, um, look, I've put your case forward to the Lieutenant Colonel in charge of Special Forces Training. And he says he knows you. I laughed and went, no, I, I wouldn't know the Colonel in charge of Special Forces Training Centre. That, absolutely not. He goes, yeah, his name's uh, Paul Kenny. And I went, ah, oh, I do know him from school. He was one of my mates at school. In fact, I was better mates with his brother, twin brother, Stuart. But we did hang out and we used to run around the bush on weekends and set traps and do all sorts of stuff. And we did that for, you know, years. I had a quick chat to him. And the first thing he came on the line, he just come on straight away and he goes, G'day, Dean, how are you, mate? I said, good. He goes, how's your back? I was just totally honest. I said, back's good, mate. I'm ready to go. You know, I, I wouldn't put my name forward if I thought there was going to, you know, endanger anyone else and that sort of stuff. I'm ready to go. And all he said was, he goes, look, the cutoff's 30, but from here on out, we're going to give you a crack. He said, if you fail anything, obviously... That's it. You know, it'll be done. There's going to be no favoritism. But he said, look, good luck, mate, and I'll, I'll let you have a go. So, I mean, I'm forever grateful for him for letting me have a go. You know, like I knew straight away, obviously, there was going to be no, oh, this is a mate of mine, this is whatever. Because it doesn't matter where you come from, whether it's SASR or commandos, you know, everyone starts fresh. Day one, everyone's the same. And so I remember just thinking, right, so now it's up to me. So I had to still jump through all the hoops at that stage. I still had to go and do psych evaluations. I had to go and do med and physical tests, which they were really stringent on me about my back. They went right through me. I still had to do the aptitude testing and all that. So I just knuckled down and I passed all of that stuff. And on my final interview at the Brisbane Recruiting Centre, a warrant officer sat me down and she said, look, you've passed everything, but we're not allowing you to go to direct entry. And I was like, well, why not? She goes, because you're 37 and it, st it stipulates you're 30. So that's the only time I pulled the cart. Well, I had to pull it out twice, but I pulled the cart out and I said, look, you need to contact SFTC and talk to the commanding officer because they have given me a green light. That's why I'm here doing this. 
And she was really, really abrupt and pretty rude. Walked out of the office, came back 20 minutes later and said, yep, you're allowed to go. So obviously she made a call and obviously someone down there went, yes, we've flagged this guy and we're going to give him a crack. And I mean, I've spoken to Bram a little bit about it over the years, you know, online with him about it. And they always joke and he and um, Paul Kenny always joke about how they laugh. They were like, well, we're going to give this, this old bloke a go, this civilian a go. And, and I end up making it. So I ended up going down there. I didn't go to Kapuka. They didn't make me go to Kapuka. I did Singleton. I did the full 12 or 13 weeks at Singo. Did really well there. Marched out of Singo and then went on straight. They posted me to 6RER for, I think it was only three or four months because I'd finished Singleton around about September. I think that was, you know, October, November, December, January. And I think January or Feb was when selection started. So I sort of had like three or four months. Uh, I just did Singleton and then they just, they didn't send me to direct entry. They just said, look, just go to uh, 6 RER, train, and then have a go at selection. Sorry, but before you start selection course, you pass out as best soldier for a third and final time. I have to interrupt you there. Yes, I did. Yeah. And I didn't want to say that because it's really quite... It's okay. I said it for you. <laughs> so I went to 6 RER. As soon as I marched into 6 RER, I was told, hang on, you're not doing selection in January or February, whenever it was, because you have to give us two years at the unit. I had to pull out the card one more time. I called Paul and I said, mate, they're trying to block me from doing the next selection course. He said, don't worry about it. Just train like you're doing it. You've got the barrier test coming up. And I think the very next day, obviously he spoke to commanding officer of 6RER because I got called over to the CEO's office the very next day and basically he told me, yep, yeah, no worries. You're doing selection in Jan or February, if it was. So good luck. So then I went back over, saw my platoon commander and he basically gave me a pass and said, right, I want you to come in every day, sign on at 7.30, do PT with the group. And then after that, what do you need to do? And I said, well, I need to go through weapons. I, I need to be able to have time to do my long pack walks and all this sort of stuff. So he basically gave me a free reign for the next four months. I just trained. And I had a couple of really good guys like corporal section commanders there that brought me up to speed on all sorts of different weapons, you know, on, on the 84 and just got me back up to speed on everything. The new radio system that was in at that stage. And so I had a really good build up to selection. I passed my barrier test and then yeah, selection was sort of like in February. The two things that I was sort of worried about, I could walk all day with a pack on, I could do all that sort of stuff. I can't run. So the 3.2 in 16 minutes with webbing, rifle, that sort of stuff. I was really worried about that one. And heaves, doing heaves, you know, like I had a maximum heaves of like 12 overgrass, really good ones, but maximum. I think they wanted 10 or 11 by recollection. So they start you off in you know, this 36-hour thing was, you know, you do the push-ups, you do the sit-ups, you do your heaves, and you do the swimming and all that sort of stuff, and you do your 3.2, and then you do your pack march. And it's all done in like pretty much 24 hours, 36 hours, whatever it was. And I remember meeting one of my very good mates on this barrier test, and he would be one of my best mates through training and Rio, selection in Rio, and then do a couple of um, tours together. And that was Merv McDonald, and he was so fit. And so I'm standing sort of midway in this line, waiting to get up on the heave beam. And I see these guys get up there and they're just big, solid guys, really fit guys. And they're just cranking out like 20, 22, 23, whatever, you know, up to 30s and stuff. And the instructors, they're doing really good heaves. And the instructor's just going, don't count it, don't count it, don't count it, don't count it. I'm like, I'm going, freak, I'm going to be smashed. If I can only get up there and do 12 good ones and if they take any off me, I'm stuffed. So, you know, guys are getting up there and they're smashing out good ones, but they might be rushing a little bit or it might be a bit of a leg flick and all that. And I just inched my way to the back of the line. I just needed time to like get it in my head, you know. It comes my turn and I'm thinking, right, I can't have any of these heaves taken off me or I'm done. So I get up there and I punch out 12 of the best, slowest heaves I've ever done in my life and they didn't take one off me. So I popped off with 12 and I did cop a bit of flack from the instructors. Going, Is that all you got? You know, I only got 12 or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I remember sticking in my head, 
It's a tick. I just had to get that tick. And then the next one was the 3.2. I only ever made that by a couple of seconds. I just don't have it in me to run fast with all that gear on. Punching forward, even onto selection, you know, I made it only by a couple of seconds. And that was the only part of selection I was really worried about was the 3.2, which is done the day one that we're there. So once I had that out of the way, I was sort of stoked. Dean, you joined the army for the first time in 1988 and 20-odd years later, you've finally passed special forces selection. You're looking ahead to the reinforcement cycle training. You are a commando. The dreams finally come true, more or less. When you first found out that you're going to be on the next rotation and go on an overseas tour, how did that make you feel? I was really stoked. When it came to getting selected for teams, you know, I have to say, possibly because I was the 37-year-old there, I was sort of selected last. So I didn't care at that stage. I just wanted to go on the next trip, which was 2009, my first rotation. And it was with Bravo Company. I just wanted to go no matter what. So I got picked to go with the Mortar Platoon, which, you know, was a blessing in disguise because I met these guys who had all done tours as operators and, you know, draw kickers. So I got to hang out with these guys who had done a lot of trips and who were very experienced and they brought me up to speed very quickly. I was just happy to be there, like to finally be doing what I'd always wanted to do. I was so excited. I had this thing in my head from when I was a 14 or 13 year old, like this vision of one day I want to wake up and I want to be a special forces soldier and I want to be in operations, you know, and I had this epiphany, like I was there, it was happening. So we get over there and the very first trip we do outside the wire it was around about a 30 day drive in soft skin vehicles. So we had the, the Land Rovers and we had the LRPVs, the six wheels and the mortar guys, we had the um, six wheelers. So they're the old, uh, you know, SASR vehicles. So we had those, we had mortar plates and lots of stuff on them. So the very first time we're out the wire, day two, we're on our way to Helmand for what was going to be a good month or so out there. And we'd hit this sort of valley. We were driving up big mountains either side and all that sort of stuff. And we were clearing IEDs. Sergeant Brett Till was out rendering an IED safe. And I remember sitting on the car because I was up in the turret, just watching him do it. And it was super quiet besides the hum of some car engines and that sort of thing. And then there was this almighty explosion. It was very surreal because I was watching it and you're sort of clocking what's happening, but you're not. And everyone was watching this. Then a crackle over the radio came over. We have a KIA. And I remember thinking to myself straight away going, well, hang on, no one's firing. So we haven't hit anyone. And then it was like, oh, shit. Right? And that was um, Sergeant Brett Till. And it was, it was a very sobering moment for me because I'd wanted this for a very long time. But then to see that day two on an operation that we just started really brought it home to me that, okay, so this is real. This is not a movie. You know, there's no music. There's none of that. There's no slow-mo, even though it was like in slow motion to me. There's no music and, you know, harps playing and all that. It was just brutal honesty of what happens when someone passes, you know, when someone gets killed. So we were there for a while cleaning that situation up. And then I think we, there was about nine or 10 IEDs for us to get out of that valley. That was a really, you know, we were moving at five kilometres an hour day and night for those couple of days and just falling asleep, staying awake, just like there's no sleep for those first few days and going into Helmand province and, you know, we end up coming under rocket attack and sporadic attacks there until we actually got to like the other side of Kajaki Dam. When things started to heat up, the boys were in contacts every day. Pretty much it was camping with guns, mate. You know, like they drive in, get into contact probably three, four hundred metres out from, I think we're on the northern end of Kajaki by remembering. They were trying to get some sort of part in or out of the dam at the other side. The British forces were trying to get something going at the other side of the with the dam. And so we were doing sort of distraction ops this side. And at the end of the day, we'd all pull back out into the dash, put the cars in a circle. We'd have a K or two of dash that we could cover easily. 
right out of the um, range of RPGs without them exposing themselves. Wagons in a circle, 12, 4 and 8. The cars would have a person up there uh, on the gun and everyone else would be eating, working out and getting ready for the next day. And we just kept doing that. And uh, it was during that, that time that one of the platoons drove in at night. We hit another ID and Damien Tomlinson lost both his uh, legs that night. And that was a pretty heavy night as well. So the IED threat at that stage was heavy and we were driving around in soft skin vehicles that had no protection. The only protection we had was stuff that we'd sort of flogged from the Yanks with some Humvee armour. So it didn't fit our cars. But what we would do is we would put these Humvee plates and stuff on the bottom of the car. So I'm standing on that in the turret on the gun so that if we did drive over something, the plate would take most of the blast and you wouldn't have, you know, the chassis or, or bits and that coming through at you. So it sort of certainly wasn't going to save you, but it would hopefully take away some of the shrapnel blasts and stuff like that. And we plastic tie bits and pieces around the vehicle as well. And so we were driving around that sort of thing. So, you know, we got into a fair few scraps at distance during that month and it was pretty heavy. We were working with the ODA, uh, Green Berets. And on the way out of there, we stopped at their base. And when we pulled up there and the other guys who were hanging out at that base, we drove in and out sort of Mad Max looking cars. They were just... So surprised. Like, what the hell are you guys doing driving around in those things out here? Like, that is so loose, you know? Like, do you know how dangerous it is out here? We're like, yep, we do now. Yeah, we, and, uh, but you know what? That was some of the best times of my life, you know? Like, hanging out with those guys and working like that. And almost having the nights off, so to speak, because we had night vision and we had, had the upper hand at night. A really good blooding into long-range disruption operations. As you've covered, you arrived there on 18 March 2009. On the 19th, Brett Till is killed, which you witness. And then a few weeks later in April, Damien Tomlinson loses his legs. And you're in this 33 days of driving around in gunfights. Are you able to let the reality and the emotion of that sink in? Or are you just focused on staying in the zone, staying on task and dealing with that later when you get home? I think that's part of the job, you know, whether you're a special forces operator, whatever unit you're in, I think part of the job is, and part of the reason they pick guys is so that you can, it's team focus first, everything else is second. And I have to say the only time I had thoughts, you know, the time to give myself some thoughts about that sort of stuff was when Brett passed away that very first afternoon, because we were still sitting there for hours and hours after it until we could Kazabak him out and stuff like that. And, um, I had time to sit down and think, you know, and my team commander at the time, and uh, he was also in the car with me, he sort of came up, he sort of goes, how are you, mate? You know, you're good. And I said, yeah, I'm no, no worries. I was, I was good with that. That's the only time I sort of gave myself a little bit of time to go, okay, this is going to happen. It's going to happen more than once, obviously. If we do some more trips, it's going to happen. It could likely happen the next day as well. So after that, I didn't really give it much thought. It was just doing the job. And I have to say, I, I enjoyed every minute out there. Like, obviously, there's times when you're sitting out in the middle of the dash, and it's, I don't know, 50 degrees and there's no shade and it's just hot and all the water you're drinking's hot, you know, and you've got a little esky with some goffers in it and cans of Coke and stuff like that. But there's times that it's tough, but that tough, you know, that toughness that you go through selection with guys and then you go through Rio with these guys and then you're doing this stuff with these guys is amazing. It was really a really good time. And it was over that period of operations and we lost guys from being killed and getting injured that the teams had a little bit of a reshuffle. I was sitting on the back of the LRPV one afternoon. It was just about to go tonight. This big follower I'd met once before on selection, he was one of the DS directing staff, walked over to me and it was Cam Baird. And I'd heard all about Bairdy, about how good a soldier he was. And, and he was very 
just straight up. He's just a straight up guy. Loved to laugh and a bit of a giggle and lots of stuff, but a very good soldier. And it was just all very, very straight down the line. It was all about the job. And I remember him walking over towards us and thinking, I wonder what Bertie wants, you know, because I had a quick chat to him during the rare cycle and stuff like that. And even though I was 10 years his senior, I looked up to him. I mean, if you're going to have an alpha male of alpha males, this is the guy. So he walks over and he goes, Parker, he goes, uh, grab your kit, you're joining my team. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, grab your kit, you're joining my team. There's a whole backstory to why they had a guy drop out of their team, which I don't want to get into because I wasn't involved in that, but it was his team commander ended up leaving their team and Cam stepped up to be the team commander of his team. He then spoke to the other guys in his team. Two of them were my best mates from selection. So it was Timothy Applin, who was 34 years old, I believe, 34 or 35, and Merv McDonald. Now, Timmy was 34 when he did selection. He was a sergeant in the army already. So this is a guy who I met and we just hit it off straight away because of our age, I suppose. And he was a funny guy. But um, he goes, well, as soon as we needed a guy on the team, I sat down with the other four guys last night and went, right, who do we want? And he goes, all of them went, get Parco. We want him. And I was so stoked. I was upset as I was to leave the team that I was with at this stage because we just, I'd been with them for two months and I'd formed a great bond with these guys and they were funny guys and, you know, we were doing some good stuff. I jumped at the chance. So that's one of the best things that ever happened to me during my whole time in Two Commando was Cameron Baird coming up and saying, you're in my team now. And I was just so happy to be then learning under his tutelage. Tell me, Dean, about one of your more memorable contact experiences during that deployment. My first real contact up close was towards the end of this trip, and it was in Mirabad Valley. It was in the Green Belt. So we'd just been on disruption ops. I think we'd been out there for a while. I can't remember, but let's just say we'd been around maybe for a week or so. And I think we were thinking about driving back to TK at this stage. But we pulled up on some intelligence or something, and we were going to go and do a little bit of a disruption patrol through the Green Belt at Mirabad. So we go through and we start, you know, kicking in dry hole after dry hole after dry hole. Hot day, nothing, not a peep, nothing coming over ICOM, no chatter, nothing. So we pull up, sitting around talking and, and all that sort of stuff. And I said to the boys, I went, rightio, we're about to move off and we were going to push forward for another maybe four, 500 metres or whatever and then pull out of the green belt back up to the cars because the cars had the Sierras on Overwatch watching down. We'd sort of walked in, down into the valley and we were going to punch out for another 500 to a K and then go back up to the cars and drive off, I think. As we were sort of gearing up, ready to go, I had this little thing that I had going on with Merv and Tim Applin from Selection, where during Selection, because I had no idea how long it was going to go for, it actually went for like five weeks. The actual Selection, I think, was three weeks, but they threw in this seven-day Special Forces weapons course at the start where, where they just crueled you with PT at the same time and did all this weapon handling and shooting and stuff, and they just started dwindling away at the guys who really didn't want to be there anyway. You got the premium Selection service, it sounds like. Oh, it was a good one, and I think, you know, and I can't mention names, but the guy who was running it, I really look up to, and he is the, the ultimate Punisher symbol guy at the unit. I wish I could mention his name, but everyone knows who I'm talking about. He was, he was so hard, but I tell you what, I thought he was the best. I thought he was unreal. Anyway, all through this five-week period, I kept sort of saying, we got to three weeks and that, and I'm thinking, well, selection only goes for three weeks usually, and all that's got to be over soon. I kept saying to Tim and Merv, oh, it's got to be over soon, you know. We'd have brews at night. It's going to be over. Next few days, it's going to be over. And it just kept going to the fact that they were like, Parker, shut up. Stop saying it's over because it's never going to be over. And it just kept going. So anyway, fast forward to this afternoon. We just had a rest after dry hole after dry hole all day. And I said to him, righto. And as we're pushing off, and I was pushing off with another mate of mine, we were both the two sort of lead scouts. I just turned around to Timmy and Merv and I said, oi, if nothing kicks off in the next five minutes, nothing's happening. I had no further, had I just turned around and taken two steps, 
and then all hell broke loose. There was rounds going off everywhere. Most of the gunfire was directed at this stage up onto the Sierras and the, the cars up on the, the mountain on the side of the hill. We uh, quickly did a bit of a reorg inside this next sort of little compound. Cam Baird, true to form, went, right, we're just going to shake out and we're going to assault. Got it? Yep, get in your fire teams. Three two-man fire teams. I was with, let's just call him uh, Soldier A. I was with him. Tim was with Bairdy and Merv was with this other soldier, Soldier M, we'll call him. We came straight out of this thing. There was raining fire down everywhere. There was, we were in sort of the green belt, so it was really thick. It was almost like a wheat field. It was sort of maybe uh, hip high. And there was rounds going through the grass, rounds going high, chopping tree leaves and everything down. We had a creek line running beside us. We assaulted in our two-man fire teams. Myself and Soldier A went straight into the first compound and started clearing compounds there. At the same time, we were sort of taking fire from what seemed to be like 203 rounds. And what it was, was we were getting so far forward of everyone else. Our team was so far forward of every other team that the rounds that were coming from the Sierras from cover fire, they were popping off 203s, were landing right in front of us. So amongst all this chaos and hail of bullets, Cam Baird just stands up, looks up at the hill and just yells at them, throws red smoke to indicate frontline troops. This is, this is where our guys are. We're about to have a blue on blue here. What are you doing? Correct. And just berates them. And I won't say the words, but he was letting them fly. Colourfully berates them. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I remember just looking at this guy going, wow. It was exciting. It wasn't scary at all. There were rounds going everywhere. And I just remember thinking, well, we're just pepper potting forward, you know, like we're just going to up, down, crawl. Sorry, Cameron Baird was not a small dude. And he's just standing up there doing that in the middle of this gunfight. Correct. Yeah. And beside him is Tim Ackland, who's not a small dude as well. Like, you know, Timmy Ackland's a very big dude as well. So what ends up happening is they end up on one side of the creek line. Not sure where Merv and Soldier M were, but they end up marrying up with Baird and Timmy Ackland. But you know, I then go forward and we clear some compounds. We're taking fire from guys from a few different areas where the Taliban were. And we end up flushing out a couple of bad guys back towards the direction of where our guys, where we thought they were. That's when Timmy Applin killed a PKM gunner. It seemed like it went for about three minutes, probably a bit over half an hour, but it was going dark now, super dark. The rest of the guys had squirted off and run away. So we did a bit of a team reorg. Now, at this stage, I think we were 500 to 1,000 metres, 500 metres to 1,000 metres in front of every other team because we'd just advanced and, and done the job, whatever. We did a bit of a team reorg. We came back, grabbed the weapons off this guy and lots of stuff. We got together and um, Bairdy was just pumping and frothing. He was just like, that was some of the best soldiering I'd ever seen. I, I say this not lightly because it's one of the best compliments I'd ever been given from anyone in my life. And to have that guy basically telling myself and Tim and Merv, who was our first trip after Rio and everything, and the other two gentlemen as well, obviously, they'd already been on a trip themselves and are still operators today. For him to tell us that was just unbelievable. Like, it was just great. Now, we were going to chase up the bad guys because they were hopping into cars at this stage. And I think what ended up happening is we called in a Dutch Apache and they hell fired the cars when they left and they killed the rest of the um, element as they were trying to leave. So it's dark time now. Then the Apache, we hear over the radio, the Apache comes and goes, we've got other targets. I'm not privy to everything that was going on right then, but I know Bertie got straight under the blower and went, no, nah, no, nah, they're lighting us up. Like they're thinking it's us. And we had no way of showing them that it was us because well, we turned on our strobes. So there was nearly another blue on blue with an Apache on us then. So while that was happening, we start to make our way back to the other teams. And as we're going back to the other teams, you've got to remember it's pitch black now, and it was a day op. So we didn't, we didn't have our um, NVGs on us. They were at our packs where we dropped them when we went into this contact. So it was pitch black in the dark, no night vision goggles. 
Good luck. So pitch black in the dark. And as we're walking back, we see this guy with an AK-47 and a big bag of stuff walk out with two ladies behind him with the full hijabs on. And so we pull him up. Bairdy and Merv weren't with us. They were still back a fair way. So it was just the four of us. So as they come up, Soldier Ray, who's short and small, goes up and tells this guy, weapon down, tells him to put the, he had a big bag of uh, opium on him or tar and tells him to put it down. And this guy's not doing what he's told. So he starts wrestling with this guy to get him on the ground. So he's wrestling with him. As he's doing that, Tim Applin walks up to the two females and wants them to just get on the ground as well. And he starts throwing out his best Pashtun and his deep voice. And he's this big guy, whatever he was saying, I can't remember, but it wasn't obviously, (laughs) it wasn't obviously what needed to be said because he was trying to tell them to get down. But these two ladies lift up their tops and flash their breasts at him because I think what they thought he was trying to say was, are you carrying anything? Show us. <laughs> so as this is happening, Soldier Ray is wrestling this old guy on the ground. I'm hanging onto this AK-47. Tim's got these two ladies and they've got their tops up above their heads. And Merv and Cam Baird walk back. It's a bit of moonlight. Bairdy just goes, what the F's going on here? <laughs> put plastic cuffs on that guy. Tim, like, get the girls to put their boobs away in more colourful terms. And it was just a really bizarre, funny situation. That was the end of that whole first time of my first contact and first, you know, killing of enemy in close quarters. And then to have this bizarre situation of these ladies flashing themselves needlessly and Soldier A wrestling this guy on the ground. It was just, it was just hilarious. That's, that's quite a way to diffuse the tension of getting out of that first major contact for yourself. Correct. So, I mean, there was a mix of emotions there. For the contact to laughing, all in that space of, you know, a couple of hours. That was the first part of my conversation with Dean Parkinson. Join us tomorrow for Volume 2, where we talk about Dean's 2010 combat deployment, losing mates, and adjusting to life back home. Here's a clip from the next episode. Our Sierra team was up on one of the features and they contacted and killed two guys at about 5.30 in the morning. And then that started it off. The rest of the day was gunfighting the whole day. If you enjoyed that interview, also listen to some of our other commando stories. Some of particular relevance to this episode include, in season one, number 10, Eddie Robertson, for Eddie's recount of his own service history and his close friendship with the late Cameron Baird, VC, MG. You have to detach yourself, I guess, from the reality that, you know, there's hot pieces of lead being fired at you and you're in the fight for your life. And in season three, check out number 47, Graham Connolly. And when you hear an explosion, because you don't know where to turn, you don't know where to move, you don't know where to hide. Find us on social media and also at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.